again listeners and welcome to another edition of the just checking in podcast this podcast as always is brought to you by vent a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about their mental health issues break down stigmas and start conversations i'm your host freddie cocker and i'm the founder and editor-in-chief of vent by now you may be familiar with the format of the pod but for any listeners checking in with us for the first time each podcast i'm joined by a special guest we have a natter about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about if it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. As always, our intro music is brought to you by our brilliant friends in Patawawa, who in the last few weeks have released their new EP, London, Paris, New York, Matlock. So go give it a listen on Spotify if you haven't already, or buy it on iTunes. It would also be remiss of me not to mention that the next Just Checking In Live is just over a month away. On June 22nd, come join me and lots of other venters and vent champions at the Lunar Lounge in Leytonstone, East London, and we're delighted to have Birmingham Funk and Hip Hop Marvels VSDN join us for a boogie, as well as DJ da- Danny Jacks behind the decks to keep you all there until the light cu- lights come on. So if you're planning to come along, but you have, if you haven't bought a ticket yet, don't wait around. We'll put the ticket link in the description of this pod so you can get purchasing. On to my special guest now, and this is someone I've wanted on the pod for a while, and who actually probably provided a bit of inspiration for me to start the Just Checking In podcast. That man is Mr. Ivor Wells. Ivor is a New Zealander, a massive rugby fan, and an expert in local government and international development. He's worked with cities across Europe, Africa, Asia and the Middle East, and he grew up in a number of different countries around the world. He's also the producer and presenter of the Standing Places podcast, which looks at questions of identity, belonging and the places we all call home. Ivor, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. How are you? I'm good, mate. It's good to be here. Cheers. You excited? I'm super, I'm, I'm amped. I'm really looking forward to this chat. I'm so excited about that. <laughs> so excited that you're excited. Brilliant. Um... Just quickly, for the listeners who might be wondering how we know each other, we're actually former work colleagues, aren't we? We certainly are. We, I think I met you uh, probably about two years ago, yeah, 18 so, months, about two, two years, years ago, ago yeah. um, when we were both working for an innovation agency in, in, in the in the epicentre of Clerkenwell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I was a lowly comms assistant. Not at all. <laughs> you, were, you were integral. You were a high-powered relationship uh, manager. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, we, uh, we we know each other from Clerkenwell days. Mm, we do. Um, so now we've got out that out of the way, shall we get started? Let's, let's crack on. Now, we spoke off air quite extensively about what you wanted to discuss in this podcast. And I think our first topic is something which our listeners will be really interested in. And that is how mental health is viewed in your home country of New Zealand. Firstly, in your opinion, how do you think mental health is talked about and viewed in, in NZ? It's a tricky one. Mm. Um, and I think... Uh, I think New Zealand's been on and continues to be on a real, a real journey when it comes to comes to mental health. I think if you sort of st- step back a bit and kind of have a look at what, you know, what what um, what makes New Zealand unique, and you know, thinking about New Zealand society, it's a pretty. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful country. It's uh, it, it's pretty laid back and easygoing, and um, you know, there's a lot of great things about New Zealand culture that makes makes it a very attractive um and wonderful wonderful place to you know to grow up in but it's also um a place where um there is a real emphasis on self-reliance and being strong and uh not necessarily you know sharing your feelings particularly for men and, and young boys um and it is a place historically where mental health and mental illness is a 
topic that's been very difficult for a lot of people mm. um, to talk about. So it, th- there's a lot of contradictions w- when it comes to New Zealand. When, it, when, when and, and I think that the issue of mental health is kind of like a, um, a sticking point that kind of brings a lot of those issues to the surface. Mm. How, how do you think boys in New Zealand, obviously speaking for very generally, how do you think they're, they're brought up differently in how they're taught to be men as opposed to maybe perhaps more European constructs of what masculinity is or should be? Yeah. Does it differ in any way or have you seen any differences or similarities maybe? It is, it is, it is different. Um, and, you know, when I think about living in New Zealand, I'm, 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 a, I'm a little bit of a, an exception in the sense that I spent a lot of time, a lot of, a lot of my childhood living away from mm. New Zealand. So I, when it comes to New Zealand, I'm, I'm as much of an insider as I am an outsider. And I can, I can kind of see it from both perspectives. But when I think about when I returned to New Zealand when I was about 15 and, I, and, and finished, the, finished my high school um, in, in New Zealand, I was, I was struck by how, um, how tough the, the, the discourse can be. There is a real pressure to... to amongst be, boys that age. Amongst boys, yeah. yeah. There's a real pressure to be staunch. Um, I went to a school, my, my, my high school was one of the better schools in New Zealand and a, and a, a school that is absolutely obsessed with sport. Mm. If any Kiwis listen to this, it's Westlake boys on the North shore of Auckland. Give them a good shout out. Love that. Yeah. Westlake. Um, and, uh, a, a really, uh, as I say, a school that's really obsessed with sport, but that comes with, um, a, a real emphasis on performance, mm-hmm. on being uber competitive, on being ahead of the game, um, and there's a lot of good in that, but it often comes at the, at, the, at the cost of an environment in which if you're struggling or if you're, you know, not, not, feeling, not feeling fantastic or if you're, whatever it is you're struggling with in your, in your life, it can be very difficult to open up and talk to people. Mm. Um, and I think I, I was really, really lucky at high school um, because I made a couple of really, really close friends who I've you know, ma- maintained a really close friendship with um, over the years. And I look back and I think, you know what, if it wasn't, if it wasn't for those guys in my life, um, I would have, I would have struggled a lot more at school. Mm. Um, so yeah, it can be a pretty staunch place. Mm. And you referenced it there about, you know, being very sport driven and very um, staunch and um, people not wanting to show their emotions or not, or not feeling like they can. Mm. And I think toxic masculinity is, I think a, is a bit of a blanket, phrase that I think is used for loads of different things which sometimes does frustrate me but have you seen that term manifest itself when you were in school and and amongst that sort of culture of boys in New Zealand I'll be honest and say absolutely Mm. I mean I'd be lying if I didn't I mean I've you know I you you mentioned earlier that I was a a massive rugby fan um I wouldn't maybe I I wouldn't say I'm a massive rugby (laughs) fan because I think I and and the the rugby angle is really interesting in this Mm. A lot of guys like me have a bit of a conflicted relationship with with rugby and sport in New Zealand. On the one hand, we love to see the you know the All Blacks win. We you know we, we know how important rugby is for the national story and the national identity. Um, but at the same time, you know a lot of guys have have suffered at the end of mm. uh, suffered because of rugby, sort of like or ex- because an exclusionary of the rugby culture. culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, or have either suffered because of it or have struggled struggled to crack into it and, and therefore felt or been rejected by a culture which can be really, really dominated by a sort of 
super competitive um the, the, the alpha the male so alpha speak. male yeah, aspect yeah, of, of, of of rugby culture so the reason i mention that is to say i'd be lying if i if if i said i haven't come across toxic masculinity growing up in new zealand i've heard the banter mm. the kind of the locker room banter i've mm. heard the guys at the pub i've heard the i've heard some of the some of the shit that gets said about women mm. and you know, when you're a teenager, you kind of absorb that. Every, no, you, you put six boys together. That's six the definition together, of toxic you know, masculinity at 15 years uh, of age. God. Who's going to put their head above the parapet? Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and I, you know, and you would participate in that in in that banter yourself as well. Mm. I'm not I'm not going to lie. But the older you get and the more you sort of look back and, and reflect on some of that, you think, man, we, what did, what did, what did we inherit? You know, what, what was... What was going on? Was that what something was... that was taught to you, do you think? Or do you think it's something that we just, as men, when we were growing up in that period where, because there was such a culture of not feeling like we could open up for fear of being bantered and mm. fear of being marginalised, stigmatised, that we were never taught anything different. So therefore that's what we inherited. I think I think there's absolutely a degree of that. Mm. And, and I think for those guys, you know, as teenagers to sort of, stand up to that and say, come on guys, you know, you're, you're full of shit. Um, that's really, really tough, really, yeah, oh, really tough to do, yeah. you know, peer really, pressure really is massive amongst you. And even, even as a, even, even as a guy, I mean, I'm you know, 42 now. And uh, I was actually catching up with a, catching up with a, an old Kiwi friend a couple of weeks ago. And the, the, the conversation sort of started to go down a route of hang on, you know, and if maybe five or 10 years ago, I probably would have gone, oh, whatever, just let him, just let him talk. And I think with everything that's going on these days and given, given, you know, given where the, the cultural conversation is at about aspects of masculinity, I just thought, no, this is nonsense. And I was polite, but I, I sort of pulled him up on a few things and I was half expecting it to sort of kick off and because mm. we've known each other for years. And we actually had a, a decent conversation about it. And I sort of managed to turn the conversation around to the fact that it was more about him venting his own frustrations and his own unhappiness about his own life. When people think about New Zealand, I think you, you referenced it previously, I think a lot of them will sort of imagine very picturesque fields and mountains, these beautiful visages and, 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 la and landscapes. And, you know, people, I think a lot of people think, you know, oh, it's where Lord of the Rings was filmed mm. and they think of all these magical places. Um, but in reality, the suicide rates in, in New Zealand are, are, are quite alarming. Can you, can you give me some stats about that and, and talk to me about this sort of weird juxtaposition between you know, people's idea of an idyllic place and the reality for people living in it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's sort of, that's a really, really good question because that juxtaposition is confusing for a lot of Kiwis as well. So you're right, New Zealand has a an unusually high um, suicide rate, particularly amongst teenagers and young people. It's actually got that, it's, it's the highest in the OECD. Wow, okay. Um, and it's double the global average for young people. Wow, that's, that's, which is that's astonishing. Yeah. So you're looking at, on, on average, about, I think it's about 15.6 deaths per 100,000 people. And it's not a lot of people, well, comparatively, yeah. there's not a lot so, of people actually in New Zealand. It's a population yeah, it's a, compared four, to other about countries. About four, four and a half million, but per capita, um, that is unusually high. It's it's double the rates in the USA, and it's actually five times the rate uh, that we've got here in the UK. So it, it's, a, it, it's a real problem. Um, it's also a, a problem, particularly for uh, for people over the age of twenty four, um, and for men as well. Mm. And Maori are also disproportionately affected. Mm. So it's and it's been a problem for a long, long time. Um, 
the the good news is that um, in the last year or so, the new government's come in and a huge amount has been done by civil society and and community groups um, to really bring attention to the fact that this is a this is an epidemic and a crisis that the country is facing. Um, and the new the new government has recently uh, conducted a review into uh, mental health and well-being in New Zealand. They um, reported back in in December, and there's been a number of um, a number of recommendations that have come out of that. Um, one of the recommendations is a national suicide prevention strategy, which the government is now starting starting to implement. It's good news, which really is good, good news, news yeah. and 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 we can maybe un- unpick a bit more about suicide in a, in, in a bit as well. Um, the other thing is a is, is a real focus on taking a whole government approach to mental health and well being. Um, so when Jacinda Ardern, the, the the New Zealand Prime Minister, was at the um, the Davos Forum uh, a couple of months ago, she was talking about. New Zealand's new approach to baking well-being into how government sets policies. So if, if ministers now want to spend money in their various different uh, different departments, they've got to actually demonstrate how it's contributing to the well-being of people in New Zealand. And I think what the government's trying to do is sort of move the conversation about what defines national success away from just GDP figures mm. to actually thinking about what is you know what does this mean in terms of the well-being of our people and our and our communities? Because mm. um, economically, New Zealand's doing very well. You know, it's about three percent growth per annum, got a very low unemployment rate of about three and a half percent. It's New Zealand and Australia both did a pretty good job of weathering the the, the, the economic crisis. Um, so economically, those figures look pretty health healthy. But when you sort of look beneath the surface there's some real pain and trauma going on. Mm. So it's good to see that a new government is really trying to respond to that and think we've got to think right across the board about how we implement policies. And why do you think it's important that, you know, we that New Zealand projects this idea of, you know, despite us being a very healthy country economically and perhaps having very nice landscapes in whatever places, that we that we break that stereotype and say, actually, we're not just this one-dimensional country where Lord of the Rings was filmed. Mm. We're a very multi-dimensional country mm. that's got a lot of real issues, but we're doing a lot to try and tackle it. Abs- yeah, and and any country is going to want to shift that narrative. Um, what's interesting about New Zealand is if you sort of take a step back and you think about what what is it about New Zealand's history and New Zealand's culture that that has got it or it has helped to contribute to the problem the problems that it's facing, particularly around suicide. And if you think about the the history of New Zealand, you've got a really, I mean, the story of New Zealand and and particularly European colonisation in New Zealand is a story of isolation, self you know, pioneering self reliance, um, and a lot of sort of stoicism. I mean, those European, you know, European settlers that first came out in the sort of early early eighteen hundreds were pretty pretty tough folk, and yet they were at the literally as far away from Europe as you can possibly get before you start coming back again. Mm. I mean, it's the, the uttermost, uttermost yeah, exactly. ed, 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 edge of the earth. And almost baked into the New Zealand experience is a profound sense of isolation and a lot of loneliness. Mm. And that has that has been sort of filtered through uh, the generations o- over the years. And you see a lot of it in, in the art and the literature um, that New Zealand's produced. Um, there's a sort of a dark, brooding 
existential loneliness that's sort of at the heart of a lot of New Zealand writing, um, a lot of New Zealand film, a lot of New Zealand art. Um, and I was just thinking as I was coming in, you know, coming over today, one of the most seminal uh, novels uh, in, in New Zealand is a book called Man Alone, which is literally about a guy on his own weathering the elements in this bleak, you know, unfriendly landscape. Um, we don't even know what his first name is. Is, is we, we just know him as his last name, which is Johnson, you know. And the story of the man alone, the of a man of few words, just the tight, the tightly wrapped individual, um, weathering the elements in this uh, hostile landscape is a really, really strong trope in you know throughout a lot of. A lot of New Zealand culture. If you talk to Kiwis, you, you'll often hear the, the the phrase "number eight fencing wire." Right, it com- comes up a lot, and and that's that sense of self reliance. Number eight fencing wire is basically it's a, it's it's a type of wire that you use on farms, mm. and you can basically fix anything with it. Right, you know? okay, jack of all trades, jack of all trades yeah. sort of thing. And it's like it, you know whatever the problem is, a good keen Kiwi bloke should be able to get a bit of number eight fencing wire and fix it. You mm. know. It's that sort of, we, I can fix anything. I don't need to get a handyman in. DIY, I don't need to speak yeah, to an expert. Yeah. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll fix it myself, you know. So again, there's, there's that sort of sense of isolation. There's a, sen- a real strong sense of, of self-reliance. And then when you think about what it means to be a guy in New Zealand, there's a pretty, there can be a very sort of limited menu of options when mm. it comes to what masculinity you know what, what masculinity jobs you can is. do or what emotions you can display and stuff I'm, like I'm that. thinking more about how we how we talk as guys mm. you know um the man of few words who keeps himself to himself is a pretty beguiling and central figure in a lot of new zealand mythology there's a a, a series of um a series of ads that were really, really popular in the 1990s when I was at school and, and, and university, advertising a, a beer that's really, really popular in New Zealand called Spates. Right. Now, Spates is from the South Island, and it's the beer of... It's branded as the beer of the sort of the hard man alone, you know? And these Spates ads... You mentioned a Spates ad to a Kiwi, they'll, 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 they'll grin immediately because mm. they'll know what you're talking about. You know, it's two guys on, a, on horseback you know, with their sort of hats on and dries a bone, yeah. jackets on, set against this beautiful landscape of like the Southern Alps or the, you know, Otago Plains with a bit of harmonica music, you know, really evoking the sort of the pioneering yeah, spirit. Yeah, yeah. And, and what's funny about these ads is it's a very, it's all based around a very short exchange um, that's very sort of, iconic or sarcastic right I'll, I'll give you i'll give you an example you know the, and it's, it's a young guy and an old guy mm. so the young guy sort of says to the old guy he's you know i've i've uh, i've met a girl up in auckland and he pulls out a photograph and it's this beautiful blonde girl and he sort of looks at the photograph and he says uh she's uh she runs her own company her old man runs a brewery He's got a 40-foot yacht in the harbour <laughs> and he's got a box at Eden Park. <laughs> and the old man looks looks at the photo and sort of raises a, a cynical eyebrow. And then the, old, the, then the young guy looks at the old guy and says, she doesn't drink spades, but... <laughs> puts the photograph back in his pocket as if to say, so I'm not interested. 
<laughs> and the old guy responds, good on you, mate. <laughs> and the logo comes up and the strap light is spates. That is great, Mark. Pride of the South for over 100 years. <laughs> now, if you think about what those ads are all about, Kiwis look at those ads and we wet ourselves laughing. It's mm. funny, right? There's, there's, there's some humour in there. But it's funny because there's there's some truth in it as well. Mm. It's talking, it's meaning. speaking yeah. to a culture of masculinity that is that can Man's often man. be yeah. self-selecting and very isolating. And mm. actually, at the end of the day, the, 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 the joke is actually about how two guys are encouraging other encouraging each other to basically stay on the edges of society, mm. avoid meaningful relationships and shun anything to do with community. And also sort of outman each other. And outman each yeah, other, you know? In inverted commas. Um, now again, you know, those rads from the 1990s, and I think, you know, New Zealand has really changed a lot in recent in recent years. But that sort of that that sort of traditional image of masculinity in New Zealand is it's pretty strong, you know. That was a really interesting um, anecdote you gave about that 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 book, Man Alone, um, especially around toxic masculinity. What other Australian and New Zealand writers have have incorporated that theme into their writing? Oh, it's rife. I mean, it's, it's rife across a, a, a um, sort of antipodean, you know, New Zealand and Australian literature. I mean, it's funny when I was talking to you about the, the Spates ads. There's a, a, a uh, one of New Zealand's most celebrated poets is a guy called James K. Baxter, and he wrote a poem called High Country Weather, which in many ways kind of um, encapsulates the atmosphere of those spates ads. And it's, it's only a short poem. And it's, um, alone we are born and die alone, yet see the red gold cirrus over snow mountain shine. Upon the upland road, Ride easy, stranger. Surrender to the sky your heart of anger. Wow. And whenever I hear that poem, I think to myself, there is a lot happening in there. A lot to unpack. There's a lot yeah. to unpack. That might be a beautiful landscape. We're talking about a postcard mm. in many ways. But it feels like it's about to kick off, mm. you know? And there's a seething, brooding anger in there you know and it's one of the reasons why high country weather is such a celebrated poem is partly because it's so short it's Mm. a poem of it's a poem of few words mate (laughs) yeah but it's also really it really encapsulates um a a lot of that experience another writer who i i'm a massive massive fan of uh, he's australian so he's from the other side of the ditch and i so i don't want to sort of dilute the New Zealand conversation, but there are a lot of similarities mm. between Australia Australia and New Zealand when you're talking about um, culture and, and particularly masculinity. Um, but uh, he's called Tim Winton mm. and he's one of one of Australia's most celebrated uh, writers. And um, he's just recently uh, uh, published a, a novel called The Shepherd's Hut, which is um, uh, about a, a young 15-year-old boy called uh, Jaxie Clacton, who's an absolute misogynist. He's a, he's a real piece of work. He's a right little shit. And Tim Winton gave a speech recently and, and wrote an article, that was, uh, which is an excerpt of the speech, about toxic masculinity uh, in, in Australia. And it's partly based on his experience of writing this character, which he didn't find, <laughs> didn't find easy to do. Mm. I, I could, sh- shall I read you a couple yeah, of quotes? Yeah, yeah, by all means. I think our listeners um, would love that. 
this is this is from his his speech um, uh, about toxic masculinity. Boys and young men are so routinely expected to betray their better natures, to smother their consciences, to renounce the best of themselves, and submit to something low and mean, as if there's only one way of being a bloke, one valid interpretation of the part, the role, if you like. There's a constant pressure to enlist to pull on the uniform of misogyny and join the shithead army that enforces and polices sexism. And it grieves me to say it's not just men pressing those kids into service. And he's writing, he's writing this article um, from the perspective of uh, a surfer. So Tim Winton's a surfer. He's, he's often out on his board. And he's in his late 50s, early 60s now. <laughs> still going strong. And he's still going like strong. He, he lives out in, in Perth in Western Australia. Um, and he he often listens to the conversations of the young, the young boys uh, that are out there. And the, the, sec- the second quote I was going to read was, he says, true, the blokes around me in the water are there, like me, for respite, to escape complexity and responsibility for an hour or two, to save themselves from going mad in their working lives. But their dignified silence in response to misogynistic trash talk allows other messages, other poisonous postures to flourish. Too often, in my experience, the ways of men to boys lack all conviction. They lack a sense of responsibility and gravity. And what he's talking about there is the importance of older men calling it out and saying, hang on, mate. This is not how we teach our boys. This this is not how you talk about a woman. You're full of shit, you know. Um, And he finishes by saying, toxic masculinity is a burden to men. I'm not for a moment suggesting men and women suffer equally from misogyny because that's clearly and fundamentally not true. And nobody needs to hear me mansplaining on the subject of the patriarchy. But I think we forget or simply don't notice the ways in which men too are shackled by misogyny. It narrows their lives, distorts them, and that sort of damage radiates. It travels just as a trauma is embedded and travels and metastasizes in families. Slavery should have taught us that. The stolen generations are still teaching us. Misogyny, like racism, is one of the great engines of intergenerational trauma. Wow. And I think he's bang on the nut. He's I bang on he the is. button, mm. you know. Um, and I think as men, um, and I'm not saying it's easy, because that crew culture is difficult to challenge. Mm. But I think we do have a responsibility to to call it out more. Yeah, that's not okay. Less of that. Yeah. All that sort of stuff. You know, I think it would be, I think I would be betraying myself now if I heard something said in a, in a group conversation, either by myself and I'd say, oh, crikey, I've said something bad there. I'll mm. hold my hands up and apologize. Or if I hear someone else saying it and I just go, that's not okay, mate. Mm. Can't say that. Mm. Mm. And sometimes people get quite defensive about it. And naturally, I think sometimes they would if they don't feel like they're in the wrong. Mm. But if you say, well, actually, that's wrong because of mm. X, Y and Z, I think it's I think it will help them in the future. Hopefully. I agree. And I, I think it, it also shifts the conversation away from not just a sort of political correctness, but you, you yes, can't say that course. you shouldn't say that you'll yeah. hurt somebody, even though there there is validity in that, in my view. But it also shifts that way to saying you're damaging yourself by saying that. You're limiting your own 
options, your own view of the world. You're, you're, you're shrinking yourself by thinking and believing and behaving like that. Um, and I think that's a really important message for, for men to get out. Now, the indigenous population of New Zealand, or the Maori, as they are collectively referred to, um, have such a unique identity and culture. And we've, we've briefly, we briefly mentioned it already on the pod. Um, now, some of these cultures can differ hugely from one to the next. And it's really important to say they're not a monolith. Mm. Um, but when we talk about mental health, how do their attitudes differ from sort of European or Pakeha New Zealanders? And how do they broach the subject with their people? Yeah, yeah. So I guess the picture I was I was just painting there with the spades ads and the sort of you know tough pioneers, that's predominantly a kind of European or the, the word is Pakeha, which Pakeha, is a, sorry, uh, that's right. <laughs> it's a Maori word that sort of um, means um, foreigner or out, outsider. Um, if you're th- thinking about Maori culture, particularly within the context of mental health, I mean I should probably firstly say I'm, I'm not a mental health practitioner, um, and I'm not Maori myself, so I, I'm not speaking as a Maori person, but. Um, but there's a there is a really interesting difference between the European approach and the and and the the, the Maori approach to to mental health and the Maori approach tends to be um, a lot more holistic. Um, in what sense? In the sense that um, there's been a real push um, for a good three or four decades now within New Zealand, as New Zealand's sort of modernised um, a lot more to to really include um, Māori culture, Māori thought. Um, they, they, we, we talk about te ao Māori, the world of Māori or Māoridom into policymaking in New Zealand and respecting the fact that we are talking about a very distinct culture which is quite different to, to, to European culture. And the Māori have a concept of health and well-being um, um, which is described as haura, which is, which is a... As I say, it's a much more holistic approach to how we tend to think about it within with, within European culture, and there's a there's a there's a there's a unique um, there's a unique sort of image that's often used when talking about um, Maori approaches to health and well-being, um, and the phrase is te whara tapafa, which basically means I won't try and pronounce that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> te whare is is a house. Mm-hmm. And, and tapafa is is of which means is of four walls. It's a house of four walls, mm. and it basically means that there's sort of four pillars or walls to the Maori view of what health and well-being means. Um, and what are they? And the first is um, uh, tahafano, which uh, which means family and and the, the family unit. Um, the second one is tahawairua, which means your your spirituality and, and your belief system. And religion is a very important thing in Maori culture, we must It is, but it's well. not just religion as well. Mm. It's also the beliefs you have about yourself and your immediate family oh, okay. and your place in the world as well. Wow, so it's okay. not just about religion, which is which is quite important. Um, the third one is uh, tahatinana, which is your your physical health. Um, that's obviously important when you're talking about overall overall well-being. And then there's uh, tahahininaro, um, which refers to mental health and the health of the mind. And what you're seeing these days, and it filters right down from sort of national policy making right through to uh, what happens in schools and in the classroom, is the te whara tapafa approach to um, well-being um, within um, parts of New Zealand where there is a, a significant Māori population is very much baked into how um, educators and uh, policymakers are thinking about how can you make sure that those four elements 
um, are recognised and respected and promoted um, uh, within within, within Maori communities. And have you seen that seep through to perhaps members of um, the All Blacks, for example, who have who are who are Maori? And that, that, that's that's a really interesting angle because if you look at the All Blacks more broadly, um, I think one of the success one of the reasons why the All Blacks has been so successful, not just on the field, but as a I guess you could say as a sort of a cultural institution in New Zealand, is the degree to which they have drawn on both European and Pākehā, you know, ways of thinking about success and performance. And the no dickhead a- policy as well. Absolutely. In inverted commas, I must say that as well. <laughs> oh, you start with no dickheads, yeah. mate, you go from there. Um, but 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 also drawing on, 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 on Māori thought um, as well. And it's really, really fascinating uh, to, to, to un- unpick some of that. Um, and some of the key principles that are sort of behind the way in which the All Blacks think about what um, what constitutes success um, is it, it actually starts with the phrase "better people make better All Blacks." There is a real strong connection now between a holistic personal development as a, as an individual and what that means for an entire uh, team. Um, and the All Blacks have done a pretty good job at sort of in- incorporating um, a lot of that sort of holistic thinking into how they think about what you know what success means. They they, they talk a lot in, in 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 the All Blacks about being a good ancestor. Right. Uh, the, the phrase, the, the more popular phrase is uh, the, is um, oh, what is it? The uh, leave leave the jersey in a better fr- leave the jersey in a better state than you found it. Wow. Right? Okay. That's a really good phrase, actually. Yeah, and so this, this idea of actually thinking about the long term, not just thinking about how can we win the next competition or how can about I, your legacy. What's your legacy? Yeah. You know, and that 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 question of legacy is also really important. But then there's also a real a real focus on humility, and the All Blacks often talk about sweeping the sheds, which is a phrase that you're probably more likely to hear on a Kiwi farm, mm. but. The sweeping the sheds mentality is is very much about no one's bigger than anybody else. We all chip in. They, they've actually got a bit of a, a reputation for always leaving the changing room, you know, spotless mm. wherever they play, because there's that sense of we all clean up, we all look after ourselves, we all do the basic, the horrible stuff, um, because that that's that's part and of that's because that's being kind. That's as well. be, that, that's yeah. part of being being, being a team. Um, uh, so yeah, there's, there's there's a lot about the there's a lot about the culture that the All Blacks has created, which as, as I say has drawn on a lot of indigenous thought um, uh, and beliefs and values over the years. And I think I think most Kiwis, you know, if, whether they're whether we're Maori, Pakeha, uh, Pacifica, um, or from anywhere else in the world, you know, I think you, we sort of look at uh, look at the success of the All Blacks and see something that's quite quite unique as a sort of a melting pot of bringing together thinking about success and well-being from a number of different cultures mm. um and i think that's the bit of the all blacks where i probably have less of a complicated relationship with mm. rugby i think it must give you a lot of civic pride as well it does yeah yeah it does and i think coming coming back onto mental health what's interesting is um because rugby is such a huge theme in new zealand culture um it's also been quite a powerful vehicle to start promoting the importance of talking about mental health. And one of, one of the leading figures in that's been John Kerwin, f- former All Black. He's uh, also former um, 
manager of Italy and Japan as well. And John Kerwin's done a huge amount to really promote the importance of uh, particularly men talking about mental health uh, challenges. He actually wrote a book called All Blacks Don't Cry, you know, which when it first came out was a pretty brave thing to do. Mm. You know, I wasn't, uh, it, it, he's not always had it easy, uh, John Kerwin, but he's almost like been a bit of a, a spearhead for um for you know more people to talk about and and you know recently there's uh there's been all all blacks like uh, israel dag um sunny bill williams um adi savia um tj Parnera, um have all in different ways talked about aspects of of their own uh their own mental health and their own struggles uh to promote the importance of actually we don't have it all together guys um we've got a problem here in new zealand when it comes to mental health and particularly around around suicide and asking for help and and as you know heroes uh, to a lot of young people it's been quite powerful to see some of these guys be quite open about the importance of talking reaching out and asking for help the next topic i wanted to dive into with you was was th- something that we've mentioned briefly in the pod and about how you've grown up around the world so i wanted to sort of frame it in your journey so to speak and how it came to be that you chose this country in particular to be your home for the last however many years it's been now. Um, first of all, have you have you always enjoyed travelling around the world or is it perhaps something that you had to do because of your parents and you just got used to it? So um, tell me a bit more about that. Um, yeah, it's probably a, a bit of both. Mm. Um, so I was b- born in New Zealand, um, but when I was six, um, uh, my parents uh, sold the house and we moved to the US, lived, moved, moved to Dallas, Texas. And spent um, just under a couple of years living in living in the states, um, and then moved to the UK. And I should probably say, my, my dad actually is my dad's English. He moved out to New Zealand in the early seventies, and he's originally from Oldham, um, in, in oh, Great, wow. Greater Manchester. Wow. That, so, yeah, I wasn't a, expecting that. Answer, no, fair, no, you, no, okay. So he's you still a, got the accent. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. It's it, it's not it's not as strong as my his brother, my uncle, right. and, and my cousins. Um, but you know he's he's he still got the accent. So and, when so when it, when he went to New Zealand, they must have thought he was from like another planet. I mean, oh, that no, accent he was, must he have was been a, he was so a, jarring to them. He, he was a proper pom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what, what's interesting is that he, he so he moved out in the, in, in the early seventies and actually joined the Royal New Zealand Air Force. Right. Um, and he, he he grew up with a love of, of of aviation and flying, partly because his dad, my granddad, who's Welsh. Uh, flew in the RAF. Mm. Uh, he was a Lancaster bomber pilot in the Second World War. Um, so, you know, I've got sort of a, a dad and a granddad that would, that both flew for the RAF and the RNZAF, respectively. Um, so, yeah, no, he, he he moved out. He he moved out to New Zealand, and uh, I met my mum, and 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 I arrived. Um, so, even as a kid, um, you know, England was this the place where my dad's from, mm. you know, and dad used to talk about England quite a lot. Um, and I think looking back now, uh, I think, I think he was quite homesick in New Zealand. I think he missed New Zealand quite a bit. Um, and I'll never forget my first trip to, to the UK. It was when we were living in the States and we, 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 we had a holiday over here. Um, and I was, I actually had my seventh, I think it was my seventh birthday up in the Lake District, 
Um, and Do I you remember where you were in the Lake District. Was it was it Kendall? Was it, it was Keswick? just outside of Ambleside, a little a little, little place, right. little B and B called okay. Crow How. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I remember, I remember, remember it very That's well. That's a good shout out. Very obscure shout out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but but the reason I remember that holiday so vividly was because I was finally seeing my dad's England. You know that I'd heard about. You know him him, him telling me all about. And I met met my uncle Ivor, who I'm named after. Mm-hmm. Um, and my grandma and, and and everything else. So I, you know, I was introduced to England very at a very young age. And then about a year later, we then moved to England for a bit as well. So I lived here and, and we, we were living up in Oldham as well. So I lived up north um, on two occasions, actually, um, when, when, when I was a kid. And then we also moved to Australia. We, 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 were, we were in Australia for about six years. And then I eventually moved back to New Zealand when I was 15. And I finished, as I said earlier, I finished my high school. Uh, in New Zealand, so yeah, moved moved around a lot. What impact did that have on you? Was it was it very jarring because you were having to sort of make friends and then leave them? And then obviously, when you're a kid, you you make friends quite quickly, and then you sort of develop those attachments, and you want to have that stability. Yep. So was it very jarring for you to have to almost like get to a place and not almost put yourself as much out there because you knew that perhaps yeah. you were moving again very soon? That's a really really good question. It was it was difficult. Um, it was also a lot of fun. And I, I also, you know, I, I look back and think I lived all over the world. I was pr- pretty lucky on the whole. Mm. So I don't, you know, I, I count my blessings, but mm. it was, it was quite difficult. Um, and I mean, I think I went to about 12 schools <sighs> in the end, which it's is a lot, which is a lot. Yeah. So I became, I, I very quickly became used to how do you, how do you fit in as quickly as possible? Mm. And I, as I sometimes use the phrase, you know, I almost became like a chameleon. Mm. You know, I had to learn how to crack a code, a social code quite mm. quickly. So whether I was in the north of England trying to fit in or whether I was returning to New Zealand in sort of staunch rugby culture, mm. you know, trying to fit in or Australian surfing culture. Or America. Or, or America. Yeah, you yeah, know. yeah. Um, and actually, I really struggled in America. I was never really happy at school there. But um yeah, I had I had to learn quite quickly to how, how to fit in, and I think I think a lot of those skills I'm really proud of. I'm really pleased that I've got, but I think the the goodbyes, yeah. the leaving, mm. is tough. Um, and I think it's easy for kids kids that experience a lot of change in their lives can sometimes find it difficult to accept as adults that things things can be permanent. You know, it's almost like a reverse effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easy. It's easy to assume that nothing's going to last. You know, so so why invest? Why invest time? Um, and I, that's actually something I've struggled with as an adult is mm. is is sometimes having to remind myself, um, uh, no, this is worth investing in, mm. and this could last. So make it last. You do you know? feel like those skills that you 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 spoke about about being a social union? Do you feel like that helped in your professional life as well about building relationships? Massively. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Massively, and it's I, you know I don't think it's a, a coincidence at all that I've ended up in a career where I'm the kind of the chameleon yeah. or, or the meat and the sandwich exactly. that's bringing no, together exactly. you know a, a group of Brits and a group of South Africans to collaborate on a project mm. about x you know mm. and i get a real kick out of that i love being get that, that endorphin rush facilita- yeah, i do yeah. i do i love i love facilitating new new partnerships across a bridge cultures. builder yeah a bridge builder yeah. yeah definitely um i think it's judging from that it's probably fair to say that you've had a pretty extensive experience of being a, a migrant as well yep and i think it's really important that 
we we talk about that because a, a lot of the time people chuck out you know invective and rhetoric about immigrants in inverted mm. commas um or Ill- or in america it's even got to the stage people are calling them illegal aliens mm. which is a horrific phrase for me um without thinking about the humans behind those words um how does that affect you when you hear stuff like but like that particularly in our current political climate oh i just it just drives it drives me nuts you know it really really drives me nuts I mean, on the one hand, I can I can understand a lot of the frustrations and fears that people have about immigration and change. I, I do. I, I really, really do. And it's not entirely unreasonable to, for, for people to sort of think, shit, you know, my my community's changing. I, 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 it's it's so different to what it was 15, 20, 20 years ago. The it's quest- that fear, isn't it? It's that fear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The question, though, is is so what do we then do about it? And and what do we? And if there are if there are bad things that are happening because of that social change, for example, you know, what do we? How do we apportion the blame? And what do we focus? What do we focus on? You know, um, and I think that's where a lot of the conversation about immigration um, has just completely gone off the rails because I think mm. people, it's really, really easy to to overlook the fact that yes as you say we're talking about human beings we're often talking about human beings to just to blow the trumpet for blow the collective trumpet for migrants for a moment human beings that are pretty resilient pretty resourceful very pretty hard working yeah yeah human beings that you know genuinely want to make a difference and understand the importance of of fitting in and and um, and contributing to a society. I think being and, upwardly social, um, socially mobile as well. I think, you know, a lot of people that I speak to who are second generation immigrants, mm. um, their parents obviously came here and, mm. and they've integrated and were born here. They place so much emphasis on, you know, being so um, determined to make their parents proud and to, to yeah. get a really good, good education, obviously stereotypically speaking. Mm. But um, I, that really inspires me, I think. And mm. it's something that when I went to my sixth form and I, I encountered these people that I thought, wow, you know, they're really determined, they're really hardworking. Sometimes they're competitive, which is mm. in, in healthy doses, mm. good. Um, but that, that drove me forward. Yeah. And that helped me raise my own standards yeah. because I was previously in a school where, you know, standards were, you know, it was sort of, look, you were looked down upon if you were, I mean, I'm not a clever, I'm not a naturally clever person, but I've worked hard to get where I am and it was sort of looked down upon if you got good results. Mm. So I think for me, I found a lot of inspiration from, from, from mates that I have whose parents were first generation and Mm. they instilled into their kids from an early age, you know, work hard, make sure you get a good education. I think Mm. that's really important. And I I think a a culture like Britain has got so much to gain from embracing and telling a story about itself, whether you're born and raised in Leeds, mm. you know, or, you know, whether you're a second generation mm. Bangladeshi, mm. What, what, whatever the, whatever it might be, you know, Britain's got such a rich story to tell about itself and, and an identity that can be so many things to so many people. And I think we, I think that can be created and maintained in a way that doesn't have, it doesn't have to cost anyone anything, mm. you know, um, you don't some, lose anything don't by have having lose, this. You don't, yeah. use your, you, don't, you don't have to lose your Yorkshireness mm. or your Lancastrianness mm. uh, at the expense of somebody else's New Zealandness or Jamaicanness. Mm. You know, we can, we can kind of 
do this all together and mm. it's great. What would you say to people who, you know, perhaps have these negative or prejudiced views about immigrants um, like yourself or others, um, either consciously or s- what I've experienced a lot of the time now is subconscious bias. Mm. They'll never accept that they're in the wrong. They'll never accept that what they're saying is when you look, when you tell them it's that's actually quite a prejudiced view mm. and that's something that's not tolerant, it's not open and it's not inclusive. But how do we... How do we break that sort of echo chamber? How do we, what would you say to people who, you know, to try and open their minds about, you know, these sort of issues and try and make them more tolerant and kind people? I think it's really simple. Uh, For all the complexities about what policies work best and how do you create an immigration system that's going to tick this box and tick that box and raise this level and lower that level, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, it's very, very simple. It's about contact with other human beings. It's about getting to know people and understanding their story, which is, which, which is just as complex and nuanced and colourful as your own story. And I think the more contact we have with people who are different to us, the more we can naturally empathise and the more we sort of get to the point where it's like, well, hang on, <laughs> yeah, it's just like me. I think the next topic to talk about, and it's something that we've I've mentioned previously in the in the intro, is um is your own standing places podcast. Um, so first of all, why did you want to set it up, and what was the inspiration behind it? Yeah, well, it comes out of the experience, I guess, of being a being a migrant or a semi semi migrant. Mm. Um, as I said earlier, being both an insider and an outsider. So if I think about my experience in the in the UK, you know, I am British. I've got a British passport. I'm a native English speaker. Um, I can, you know, I can very much be an, an insider in, in Britain, but I can also step back and and be a bit of an outsider. I, I, I understand that sort of migration um, experience. And I think because questions of identity and belonging and place and home have been so much a part of my own story, um, and I'm always talking about them, you know, with friends and, you know, whoever, um, I just thought... I'd, love to do this on a podcast and I I, I actually I, I ran a radio show when I was a student at Auckland University uh, years ago and I'm a bit of a frustrated broadcast journalist mm. um, I never never went down that route um, so I, I was I, I was thinking recently I'd look I'd I'd love to get a get a microphone and start putting it in the, in other people's mm. faces and talking about this kind of stuff um, so the the inspiration behind it all actually comes back to a concept in in, in Maori thought which uh which is the word Turanga Waiwai. Um, what is that for the listeners who don't, who don't now, know what that means? Turanga Waiwai literally means a place to stand or a standing right. place. And it's really central to Māori um, identity. It goes hand in hand with another concept, um, which is called Papa, which is your ancestral lineage um, and your, your connection with your ancestors or your, or, or your tipuna. Um, and it's very much about, it's not just about who... It's not just about where you feel most at home, or that's part of it. It's also where you feel most accepted, or where you are most accepted by others. It's more of a community feel. So it's very much about your connection to a place, uh, your sort of turanga waiwai, is as much about you as an individual as it is you as a part of a wider societal unit. Um, And it's also about how you remember and connect with your ancestral lineage uh, as well so it's got a very very holistic sort of uh concept behind it but there's 
but it's a phrase that a lot of New Zealanders are aware of, that sense of identity and a standing place. Um, so, yeah, so so I thought Tūranga YY to a wider audience might be a little bit obscure. I think um, it's a really good USP, though, because yeah. the way you explain it so well, I think it makes it a really interesting yeah. topic. Um, was there one particular moment where you thought, you know, you had that light bulb moment and you went, right, that's it. You know, I want to do this podcast. Or was it something that you think maybe emerged organically over time? It, it, it took me a little bit of a while because, yeah, it kind of it kind of it, it took a while to emerge. Mm. And then... Um, it's about 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 a year ago. I just thought, oh, solid, you know, let's let's let let's let's crack on. Um, so I have to admit, it's it's it, I I've not um, I've not yet uh, launched um, any episodes other than the intro episode. But I've recently um, re re edited and remastered that, and that's now on the on the on, on the website. And where can people find that? That's standingplaces.com. Brilliant. Um, and that's that's an intro to who I am, what I'm wanting to do with the podcast. Um, and the types of stories that we want to sort of And do you cover. plan to put it on Spotify or iTunes or SoundCloud? Or um, what other platforms can people maybe get at it? It's going to be on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not not yet sure about Spotify, but at the very least iTunes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm hoping to get the first three episodes um, done and launched um, over the next month or so. And who've, in, for a little uh, Just Checking In exclusive, yes. what sort of guests have you got lined up? So, well, funnily, funny you should ask that, Mr. Cocker. Um, I, I believe, um, if, if my people have been talking to your people... Oh, really? ...that I may have you and a couple of your mates Oh, okay. To talk Is this about. the first time I've heard about it? Yeah, no, well, uh, <laughs> I, it's, a, it's a beautiful I'm lying, segue. we've been talking about this for a but while. No, but so, so you and I are going to be sitting down with a couple of your mates from South Woodford and we're going to be talking about growing up in North East London. And I'm really looking forward to it mm. because as much as the podcast is inspired by the migration experience, I'm equally interested in stories across the UK as well. Um, so really looking forward to having a chat about growing up in London um, with you. Um, I'm speaking to uh, some uh, a couple um, uh, of American colleagues of mine about their migration experience to the UK and also a Canadian friend um, who's, who's really interested to talk about um, uh, both her experience, but also um, some of the questions actually that we're that, we'll, that, that we're looking at about identity here in the UK um, as well. Mm. Um, and then I've got a, a sort of a, a longer forward plan of mm. of, of of ideas of pe- people to sit down. And I think identity as well for not just people of um, uh, mixed heritage, but also people who um, aren't that essentially um, I think that's a really good, important discussion as well to, to, to have that comparative analysis and that comparative discussion yeah. about what was it like perhaps having um, one parent of a different race or background to the other yeah. what was it like having parents of the same background yeah. um, and having that comparative discussion I think that's yeah. a really good top topic about identity yeah. as well and I think it's really really important that you're having that with people as well yeah and I think I think places are really important as well so like I mentioned earlier that you know uh, spent time living in Oldham and my dad's from Oldham um, that's a place I'd love to go back to for a bit and spend some time talking to people and getting a sense of, you know, how has change been experienced in that town as has been happening in towns and cities across the UK for a, a, a number of years. But to sort of have conversations that are a little bit more down to earth and human than, you know, other media might 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 have them because it's, it's really easy to sort of launch off into the political and 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 launch off into sort of areas that sort of naturally make the conversation about us or them, or, or, or perhaps find clickbait things that they yeah, say, or just yeah. just have a divide, you know, a, a, a binary conversation about something rather than just sort of saying actually, 
you know, we all we're all complex beings. Our communities are complex, and we 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 all experience change in in very very human ways. Um, and it's not always simply good or bad. You know. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think this podcast? And obviously, you're 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 yet to launch it in in a big way. But do you think it's it's helped you grow as a person, or do you think it's been merely sort of an extension of yourself that you've given to others to find out about and enjoy? Oh, I don't want to get ahead of myself because I haven't properly launched it yet. <laughs> yeah, but, we've got to manage expectations, <laughs> yeah, don't exactly, we? Yeah. Exactly. But I, I, what I will say, what I will say is it's taken a lot of, uh, it's, it's taken a lot of courage actually to put myself out there mm. and talk about it. What's that and been like? The reason I say that is because some of these experiences that I want to talk to other people about have been sources of quite a lot of discomfort in my own life. You know, it ain't easy mm. moving around the world uh, and or it, it, it ain't easy sort of growing up with that amount of change in your life. And, you know, I, I'm cool with the fact now that it's it, it, it has it has had an impact on me. It shaped who you are. It shaped yeah, who I am yeah. for good and for bad, you know. But I, I think about that now and I think about how difficult and confusing and complex our national conversations are getting around these sort of topics. And I think... If, if I can make a contribution to a conversation with other people that might just help move things along and, and help explore some of these issues in a slightly more normalized human story based way, well. nuanced yeah. way, yeah. then I'll put myself out there, you know? So yeah, I, I don't, I don't mind admitting that it's, it's, it's slightly scary because for me, it's very personal. Mm. And it has, has it made you sort of address some of your own demons maybe and say, oh, this is something that perhaps... I've been actually struggling with that I've maybe only come to terms with now and here's some ways that I might be able to help myself in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think more broadly, you know, when it, you know, if you're talking about mental health more broadly, I mean, I, um, I've been very lucky in the sense that I've, I've, I've never struggled, I think with a, with a chronic mental health problem. Um, but I have definitely had episodic, you know, issues around, both anxiety and depression at times over the years. Um, and I've learned a huge amount, particularly I would say in the last sort of five or six years about the importance of reaching out and seeking help, not just from friends and family, but also professionally, mm-hmm. you know, um, I'm a big advocate for the importance of, you know, talking therapies and, mm-hmm. and sitting down um, with a professional and sort of talk, talking through some of, some of these things. I, I, it's, there's no stigma attached to that in my mind mm. anywhere near as much as there would have been maybe five or 10 years ago. Um, it's amazing and how long we've come, how far we've come as well. Massively, yeah. massively. And, and one of the, one of the first things that often comes up, you know, if I'm talking, talking about some of my own struggles is place and migration and change and new things. And, and, uh, and, you, you get to a point sometimes where you, you think actually that's a tremendous that can be a tremendous source of of creativity and and strength not not just weakness you know and if you can get to a point where you think actually I don't mind sitting down with other people and talking about it then that can be quite exciting you know You'll be pleased to know, mate, that uh, we've come to the final topic for the Just Checking In podcast, which is is our own mental health. Um, So this is something that I have with all my guests. So don't worry, I'm not putting it out there for a gotcha moment. Um, Firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, pal? It's not bad. It's good. Mm. Yeah. Mm. 
if you um if you felt comfortable saying what and obviously we've alluded to this previously what mental health issues do either do you have or have you struggled with mm. in in your day-to-day life yeah so i think i sort of alluded earlier i think i've um i i have struggled and i i think i always probably will struggle to a de- to a degree with with anxiety it's it's something i i you know i i'm i'm not uh, <laughs> not the world's best at at, at managing mm. Uh, stress and anxiety. How does it manifest itself when when you talk about it? Because we have loads of different forms of anxieties. I think for me, it affects me a lot in in certain triggers at work or in mm. certain triggers in my personal life. For example, when I make a mistake or something like that, yeah. I can get a bit of a pang of anxiety and I yeah. stop myself having anxiety. How does it? Yeah. How does it sort of affect you? I think ge- general work related stress is something that 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 I I I've, I struggle with, um, and I think the way the way it can impact on me is it, it, it almost like completely sort of shuts me down. It's mm. like all the important stuff just gets put on hold. Mm. So, you know, I'll, uh, I won't go to the gym or, you know, I won't go for a swim or, mm. uh, or I'll, uh, you know, grab a crap meal on the way home mm. rather than cook myself something healthy. So like a mental roadblock. It's like a mental, yeah. yeah, it's like a mental roadblock. And, and, and I think maintaining, maintaining healthy discipline in other areas of my life where I know if I continue to do this, continue to exercise, continue to, continue to eat healthily, continue to reach out to friends, continue to be active or continue to sort of do other creative stuff that gives me energy in other ways. Um, it's, it's, it's far, far, far too easy for me to sort of uh, allow that stuff to slip mm. and just focus on my own navel. Mm. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's a constant that's a constant battle mm. with me. What what age do you think you were when you first realised that these sort of feelings um, and anxieties and, and whatever else it was? When was what was the what was the first time you realised that these weren't just physical things and these were actually going on inside your own mind? Bloody hell, that's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. I would say probably my second year at university. I had a similar mine was similar I think I yeah. came to eight, when I got to about 18 that was when I started going oh yeah. crikey all these things I've had are actually yeah. mental and not yeah so I had a lot of really difficult stuff going on at home at the time um, in my in my family environment um, and I just I just hit a wall and mm. and I actually pulled out of university took a semester off and all I remember all I wanted to do I had a part-time job at the time as a porter in a five-star hotel which was like the best job ever really yeah wow. even better than the job where you and I met each other in <laughs> yeah. I was driving driving cool cars I was meeting people from all over the world it was just like such a such a cool See, job that's such an in my in my in my presumptuous mind, I was thinking when you said port, I was thinking oh, I was going to say it was horrible because I had to carry everyone's bags no, and all I that sort of it. stuff. Really, but, and, and I I really enjoyed the physical the, the, the physical aspect of it as oh, well. Okay, yeah, I, wow. So it was a great job, really funny bunch of lads that I worked with, um, and all I remember all I wanted to do was just quit just quit uni and just work full time at the hotel, mm. and I did that for a for a semester, and I don't think I realised at the time, but I was really really struggling with that was more depression at the time there was just stuff in my life that was all coming to a head and oh man it's funny talking about this because i had a fat we had a family friend at the time who kind of like pulled up alongside me Mm. and saw that i was struggling Mm. and invited me out to coffee Mm. occasionally and to check in 
you know? Mm. And he basically was like a mentor to me. And it was very, he was very deliberately, he saw the potential in me. He saw the fact that I, you know, had a future and I had good head on my shoulders. Um, but he, he really challenged me. Mm. And and we'd we'd have these conversations where I'd I'd vent and rant for you know half an hour forty five minutes, mm. and then he'd sort of sit and look at me and say, "All right, I hear you. So what are you going to do about it?" Mm. I was like, "You bastard! <laughs> you know, don't ask me that. You know, don't be but so think, practical." But I think it's good that he asked but you he that did. though, because that's did. great. Because I think Absolutely. a lot of the time we we do, and it's amazing that we talk about all these conversations. But we also have to sort of have these conversations with ourselves and say, "Well, now that we vented, yeah. what are we going to do?" with ourselves or with other people to help ourselves Absolutely. and make ourselves feel better. And I think men in particular can be really bad at holding each other to account in healthy ways. You know, we can vent with our mates, but sometimes we don't follow up and say, okay, so you said yesterday, mate, that you wanted to do such and such. How's it going? Mm. Where are you at with it? Mm. Have you done anything about it? You know, and that healthy accountability, that was the first time I'd ever sort of had a healthy, um, a healthy sort of, Peer to you know male role model, mm. uh, someone from outside the family that was just wanting to have a serious conversation about how I could get my life back on. Did track. it feel really massive to you at the time, or did it feel did it feel like you would you were entering a new chapter of your life, or did it feel almost insignificant as if it felt very very no, natural? No, it was it actually was a big deal. Mm. It was a big deal to me, um, and I think it was partly because. Uh, this is a whole another podcast, but I, <laughs> I actually wasn't in contact with. Well, I, I wasn't. I wasn't in a huge amount of contact, uh, regular contact with my own dad at the mm. time, um, who was living back in New Zealand after my, my, my parents split up when I was fourteen. So there was also this sort of fractured family um, setup that was difficult as well. And I, you know, desperately missed my dad, and I've, I've since really, really reconnected with him since moving to the UK, and we're very close, and I love him to bits. Um, but at the time I didn't have I didn't have in my life a sort of a regular sort of father fatherly role role model. Mm. A um, paternal figure yeah. to sort of look to and have those regular conversations yeah. with and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. And 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 this friend of mine, his name's Martin and, and, and Martin Shout out Martin. Yeah, g'day Martin. Yeah. And and hey dad. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Martin was uh, he was he was in his I think he was in his fifty you know, late forties, fifties. Um Married with his married with kids, and he was a he was the CEO of a of a large company, so he was a busy guy. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, he took the time to sort of invest in me, and I've never, I've never forgotten it, mm-hmm. and I've 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 I'll always be grateful for that. How do you look back on that moment? Do you feel like it was a, it was almost like, a a, a very life shaping moment for you? Massively, mm. yeah, it was, it was, because it got you know, it, it didn't just get me back into university, it. I think it made me realize, hmm, okay, I think, you know, I've got my limits, mm. you know, um, there's only so much, you know, shit that I can take. And when I am struggling, I need to have the courage to put my hand up and, and mm. say so. I think that's really, that's really amazing that you, that you had those conversations then. And, and I think it's really brilliant that someone like him could have seen that you were struggling mm. and at, at a time when the conversation around male mental health was so stigmatized, so stigmatized that he took the time to invest in you. Um, when it comes to, and you've alluded to it that, to it there with, with sort of family issues around mental health and when someone is going through and, and how it affects not just that individual, but their families as well. Why do you think it's really important 
when we're trying to help people who are struggling with mental issue, mental health issues, that we make them realize that it's not just that individual is affected, but it's their whole ecosystem. Mm. It could be their whole social network and, and stuff like that. Absolutely. And without going into, into any detail, I've, I've, I've had members of my immediate family and my, and my extended family um, that have struggled with mental health uh, over the years. And it has caused a huge amount of, um, of difficulty mm -hmm. uh, in, in my family. And I think there's two, there's sort of two things that we need to focus on when we're thinking about mental health within families. The, the, the first question is, how can we make sure that the person who is struggling, clearly struggling with a mental health problem, whether it's diagnosed or not, gets the help that they need and that's got it that's that's its own hornet's nest of questions about how you do that as a family and what what your how much you can do and how much you can't do and how much is for others and professionals to sort of step in and that, that that's probably a whole nother podcast I, I think the bit that I'm I've been really focusing on in, in, in recent years and I'm also really interested in is how do families themselves look after each other as well and that's that's just as important. Uh, it, it's that principle of putting on your own oxygen mask first before helping helping somebody else. And I've seen it. I've experienced it. Uh, where if 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 families are not able to come together and stay close when one of their loved ones is struggling with mental health, that can just exacerbate the problem mm. for, for everybody. And I think there's two things that I think are really, really important in that. Firstly, it's the importance of educating ourselves about mental health and becoming more savvy and becoming less naive um, about some of the symptoms and behaviours that and we can see in others. Like that, yeah. Where we can say, look, I'm not an expert, I'm not a qualified practitioner, but that is clearly a mental health issue that we're talking mm -hmm. about. And I need to learn more about it myself when I see that in other people. And I need to have strategies in place in terms of how I deal with that. So I think that's really, really important. And I think the other thing <clears throat> which is really important for families to do is to learn how to reach out to others outside of the family unit. And by that, I'm thinking of not just friends and friends and colleagues, but also professionals. Um, it's very, very easy for families to feel like uh, they're suffering, you know, with this all on their own and that the difficult, crazy, you know, hurtful, terrifying behavior that they're having to deal with is completely unique to them. 99 times out of 100, it's not. Mm. There will be other families that are also dealing with, with, with similar stuff and there's support and advice out there that that people can draw on. So I'm a, I'm a big sort of proponent in, 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 in the importance of yeah, putting, putting your oxygen mask on, mm. um, and, and looking after, looking after those nearest and dearest mm. when, and just finally, um, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health, um, or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found, um, have worked for you and, and which ones haven't? I think number one is talking. I'm a, you know, <laughs> I'm a talker. We're both talkers, <laughs> aren't we? are both talkers. <laughs> so, you know, talking for me is really, really important. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm bloody lucky to have, you know, some really, really good friends um, outside of the family that I can talk to. I'm also lucky that uh, one or two of my friends have also got experience either in, in, in mental health or, or psychology 
um, as well. So I've, I'm quite lucky that I've, I've got a, you know, I've, I've got a, a network of friends that I can have informed and really good conversations with. Mm. So talking, talking is really, really important. I get a huge amount out of creativity and the arts. So, you know, uh, music, I, I just, I don't know where I'd be without my tunes. Mm. You know, we're both in this. I'm a massive music oh, nerd. I think you're a bit mate, of a music geek you know, as well. It's funny actually when you asked me earlier when you know when did you know when did you first sort of think I'm 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 struggling here, yeah. and I said second year at uni. I remember when I got when I got my first stereo, my first CD player, Ooh. and I was about. I must have for been the listeners who are a bit too young to uh, yeah, remember yeah, what a CD yeah, player yeah, is, yeah, exactly. it was a thing that you took around <laughs> and like, you could just put one CD in. There. <laughs> yeah. And um, you, that's all you could listen to. <laughs> so uh, if anyone wants to research them or wants a bit of a nostalgia, look so, up a CD player or Walkman. And so you'll find I, I, went, they are. I went to the shop and I brought a compact disc. <laughs> uh, it was unbelievable. It's, it, it spins like a disc. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember it. I remember at the time, and I was, there was some difficult family stuff going on at the time, actually. And I remember how much music became an escape. Massive and for a, me. A massive well, escape yeah. for me. What particular um, albums in, in did you find that or songs or <clears throat> really helped you either speak to you about your issues or just you just found as a good way to escape? I just I I think one 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 of the first albums that I just absolutely fell in love with was uh, Paul Simon Graceland by Paul Great Simon. Album. Um, one of the best albums of the twentieth century, in my humble opinion, incredible album, and it 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 took me to another place. It just took me to another world entirely. And there was these drums and angels and the architecture and strange lands and, you know, rhythms that I hadn't heard before mm. and lyrics that were like, you know, all these words. And I, so that, that album just, uh, was, was my, was my, my portal. Was there any albums that you, that you listened to where the, the lyrics themselves expressly reflected how you were feeling? I mean, from speaking from my experiences, I, I mean, I've listened to a whole plethora of genres, but I think the first mm. genre that I listened to that really expressed or reflected in the lyrics how I was feeling was was pop punk. And I think, you know, mm. American pop punk, especially in the, you know, mid noughties, early noughties, and and the British scene which has emerged in Australia. There's a very good Australian scene at the moment. Yeah. Um and a lot of their lyrics were about feeling inadequate, feeling isolated, feeling lonely, feeling like the outsider, because a lot of the time mm. pop punk was listened to, and less so now, but pop punk was very much listened to um sort of inverted commas losers in school you know That's and really that whole yeah. that whole yeah. lyricism where you know a lot of music videos would be about the kid that was on the outside who was getting picked on mm. and um they dressed differently or they spoke differently that really really spoke to me and that those feelings of you know wanting to escape your hometown i didn't really want to escape my hometown mm. but i wanted to escape my school mm. um mm. so that, that feeling of trying to get out and making a new life for yourself and mm. feeling like you hated yourself, but you wanted to. You wanted to love yourself. Mm. That was something that really saved my life when I was listening to pop wow. punk in school. So, um, I just wanted to get from you, like, was there That's anything really, that really expressly reflected what you were, what feeling? It's really interesting hearing you talk about that because I think for me, I didn't so much look for music that made me go inwards. Mm. I, and there was a lot at the time. So I was, I was at uh, high school end of primary school early high school uh when the grunge scene kicked off yeah so nirvana you know yep. nirvana Nevermind, uh pearl jam Soundgarden, sound yeah, stone temple pilots yeah. so the the grunge scene in many ways I, I remember it was described once by uh i think someone in the rolling stone is what 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 you get when the when the 
the generation of divorced kids pick up guitars, you know? <laughs> and the, so the grunge scene was very much about, you know, me on my own and yeah. sitting in my nihilism, own. nihilism, yeah, a yeah. real sense of sort of, 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 of looking inwards. And I did get into grunge and I, I, I got, you know, I loved it and, mm. and, and enjoyed it, but I, I got more out of music that took me to other places. Mm. So I, in, in a strange way, I got more out of hip hop. And, oh, okay. and, yeah, and yeah. it actually sounds funny being a you know a white kid in the suburbs, but you know gangster rap. I was listening mm. to uh, Public Enemy and NWA, Ice T, yeah, yeah. and actually Tribe Called Quest, or, yeah, and or stuff li- like listening that. to yeah. some of those stories and thinking, oh, there's this whole other world out mm. there that I don't know. And then uh, from an Antipodean angle, I, I really got into Midnight Oil, which I okay. love, and that was about politics and environmental issues and land rights and mm. in you know Indigenous Australia and. And uh, again, I, I was fascinated by by narratives and stories that were mm. part of that that were that I otherwise wouldn't have come across. Yeah, I, and I think I think in, in many ways there are similarities between hip hop and, and pop punk in the sense that hip hop was very much about reflecting where you came from, and a lot of mm. um, hip hop artists came from extremely underprivileged backgrounds, mm. wanting to escape mm. um, Compton or you know mm. um, Philadelphia, whoever wherever yep. they came from, you know West Side, East Side, and Punk, pop punk was similar in that they wanted to all escape their hometowns and I wrote a lot about that. But I also found this comparison of the lyrics and songs were very upbeat. They were very mm. punchy. They were very powerful. You could dance to them. You mm. could you could go, you know, I went to loads and loads of pop punk gigs and danced. And I found, you know, crowds and communities which I didn't have in school. Mm. And, you know, they were enjoying this band and, and no one else in my school really enjoyed that band. Mm. So it was almost like I not felt ownership of them, mm. but like I almost like had that as like my yeah, thing yeah, and yeah. I could have that to myself and no one else could take it yeah. away from me. So yeah. And it, it, it's funny, like you, you, you know, you mentioning bands from America. I mean, cause I lived it, lived in the States for a couple of years. Mm. Um, I developed a real fascination with America right from a very, very young age. Um, and yet the America that I was introduced to as a kid, because my parents were very strong uh, Christians at the time was basically Bible belt America. Right, you know, evangelicalism, so eva- evangelical, yeah. sto- you know, and that music is sort of like really like folk rock. Yeah, and I yeah. and I actually did listen to a lot of that as as a teenager as well. To be to, to be fair, but what was interesting about you know gangster rap and hip hop, and it's it's easy to sort of mock that as as you know white suburban kids yeah, that yeah, yeah. you know never never lived in Compton or LA or Philly or wherever. But I think what what was fascinating me about it was it was a it was a story of America that I'd. I hadn't heard before. Mm. And I, mm. I remember actually, you know, I, I remember we had f- family. I remember Martin Luther King being talked about in conversations as this rather dubious figure in American history. Now, I look back at that and I think to myself, who the hell were we hanging out with? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, but, so a few years later when I'm in my teens and I'm listening to bands like, you know, Public Enemy. Rage Against Machine. All you know, Rage Against, stuff, you know, yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm learning about this, this other story of america mm. you know um this one and, where they weren't it, it wasn't like brimming with patriotism yeah. and um you know flying <clears> the flag you know raised against machine we're t- yeah. talking about take the power back and yeah. bomb track and absolutely and and bullet in the head and all this sort of stuff and then ironically grunge and hip-hop was then slowly uh replaced for me by a massive phase where i got into bob dylan mm. You know, and again, that was an, a, a another another yeah, narrative of America. Leonard Cohen's you know. people like that. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So for me, it was. It's, 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 I've never had this conversation before. It's really interesting. I love it. But, another vague exclusive. For, for, yeah, I love but it. for me, it's like 
rather than rather than looking for music that took me inwards, I I was really attracted to music that 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 gave me stories that took me took me el- mm. elsewhere, you know, um, and that really really sparked my imagination. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this edition of the Just Checking In podcast. Ivor, thank you so much for being my special guest on this edition's pod, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, just quickly for the listeners who want to keep an eye on what you're doing in the future, where can they find you and the podcast on social media? So they can get me on uh, standingplaces.com, which is the website for the uh, Standing Places podcast, or you can find me on uh, LinkedIn, um, Ivor Wells, I-V-O-R-W-E-L-L-S. Uh, and my Twitter handle is also Ivor Wells, or one word. Perfect. As always, I want to say thank you to all the Venzers who've tuned into this edition of the pod. If you've liked what you've heard, please give us a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling generous, write us a view on, on iTunes. It will really help us reach more people. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. It's strange, strange.